wonderful to have Jim on board as assistant pastor and Melissa, his wife. And as I looked at the bulletin, you know, in the front, there's, there's a number of names. And there's something that, and I think it came from pastor's conference a couple weeks ago, that, that a, a church cannot operate with just those people that are listed. Yesterday we came down, the, the power was off for a while, uh, started what Friday night, Friday evening, and, and I just have to think of those that make the, this, our gathering this morning possible. So as we came yesterday, it was kind of dark in here, there was no electricity, but Sarah was down here cleaning. You know, Sarah's name isn't on this list, but what she does, the work she does, nobody notices, but we sure notice it if she didn't do it, right? <laughs> she doesn't get any recognition. And she's probably glad for that. She'd probably wish I'd not say anything now, but that's okay. Her work is indispensable. You Sunday school teachers, Nancy that does our bulletin, Aaron and Stacy that do the communications, you know, all the different people that are involved in the life of this church, you are important. And even though your name isn't plastered somewhere, you are doing the Lord's work. And I truly thank you for that. This church thanks you for that. After last Sunday's sermon that Wayne preached, I realized something. I think we need a new office, and I think Wayne's the guy. We need a sermon titler. Is that a word? Titler? When, he, when Aaron first sent out the, uh, that communication about Wayne's title, did any of you see that? A cosmic hardware store and a pig's breakfast. Man, did that get my attention. Then he dropped the pig's breakfast, and I couldn't figure out why. So, my mind got churning. Um, so this morning I've titled my message, Making a List and Checking It Twice. I thought, well, if Wayne can do it, I can too, right? And some of you will recognize that as a phrase from Santa Claus is Coming to Town, so don't start singing that. But, um, but titles mean something. Names mean something. And so you'll understand this as we go through this morning. So, Wayne, you kind of make me jealous, but um, we'll talk more about you in a minute. But anyway, if you have your Bibles, open them to Ephesians chapter 1. And we've been working our way uh, through this, and we'll spend some time. It's interesting that Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, when Paul wrote this in the Greek language, it was one sentence. Verses 3 through 14. Imagine that. Now, in our English language, it's broken down. So when he, when he said it, it was one continuous sentence, but it is packed full of things that we need to understand, we need to learn, and we need to apply. Last time we looked at this, uh, we found out, we realized this, who we are in Christ. Who are we really? We are blood-bought, Holy Spirit-filled, redeemed, recreated children of the living God. That is an awesome privilege, but it's an awesome responsibility as well. We learned that we have been chosen in Christ. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes in the next chapter, by, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is, this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. 
we are saved. When we accept the Lord Jesus, when we repent, we accept Him as our Lord and Savior, we are saved. In our Christian language, you know, we have, we have words that we use that, that the world doesn't use. One of those is saved. We use that a lot, and it's interesting, our world even uses that. But the word saved defines what has happened to us. We have been saved from something. We have been rescued from something. A person who is caught in a riptide and then is rescued, we would say they are saved. Their life was saved. They were saved from something. They were saved from drowning. A child who is up in a tree, they climb a tree and they can't get down. You get a ladder, you rescue them, we save them, we have saved them from falling, but also from living the rest of their life in that tree. So they're saved from things that could be, could be really detrimental to their health. We are, as Christians, are saved from something, the eternal consequences of our sins. In Romans chapter 6, verse 23, we read, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Sin earns death. Salvation is a gift. There's a huge difference. We deserve, we earn death because of our sin. But by God's grace, we are given salvation. We do not earn it. It is a free gift from Him to us. We are saved from something. But there's another idea about saved, that word. We save things for future use. We save for retirement. We save food in the summertime to be eaten during the winter. We save things for all sorts of reasons. There are also people, and maybe you know some, who are called hoarders. They save things as well. There are people who stick things away, and it's interesting that most of the time they're not even important things. And sometimes you may go to their place and I helped Stuart this week and reminded me of this you just kind of have a path to navigate through and it's just stuff it's it's of no use they have no intention of saving it for future use they just pack it away it's actually a mental disorder I understand so that's another idea about saving but we are saved as Christians from something but we are also saved to something now, in our, in our way of thinking, we are saved from our sins, from eternal damnation because of our sins. We are saved and that eventually we will, we will enter heaven, we will enter God's presence, and we will live forever with Him. So in that sense, we are saved to something. But in the middle, in the time when we accept Christ to when we, we stand before Him in, in glory, there's this, what we call life. And we are saved to something that takes place in this life. But most of the time, a person who is drowning is saved, is rescued, and when they get back on the shore, they basically will continue their life as they did before. They'll go home, the life will just go on as it had before, except my guess is that anytime they get close to a body of water, they get nervous because they know something happened there that, was, that almost cost them their life. It's interesting just talking with some folks from Kentucky. We know the flooding that took place earlier in, in uh, whenever that was, last year, I guess. And, and even now, when it starts raining, some people go into a panic attack. 
because they remember the trauma that they endured from that, that terrible flooding. And so when it starts raining, it, they're reminded of what they experienced. So life has changed somewhat, but life continues normal for most, most people. A number of years ago, um, when I say we, I think Marilyn was part of that, Ruth and I, there was a terrible motorcycle accident out here on 312. And because of the actions of Marilyn, she started CPR, his friends started CPR, we called the squad, the helicopter came. His life was saved, he was saved from death. But it changed the course of his life. He was a backslidden Christian at that time. He was running from God, but that, that accident changed him. But it also changed his career. He became a firefighter. He became a paramedic to help save others. So in that sense, his life was changed, but he still went on living his life. As Christians, we are saved from something, but we are saved to something. We are saved to a life that is to be different and radically different. So how do we live this life? As Paul says, this life is now in Christ. What does it mean to live in Christ? Jesus says that the person who hears His Word and believes has passed from death to life. When we think of death and then life, those are radically different. And Jesus said, when we believe in Him and accept Him, we come from death and now we live we are in life. We have, begin, have been given life. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, it begins with these words. Even as He chose us. That word chose or chosen is not a complicated word. Those who are in Christ have chosen to follow Jesus. We have given up our own wills. We have accepted His gift of salvation. We have chosen to become His child and to follow Him. But here Paul is helping us understand that even our own choosing is ultimately God's choice. God's first choice. In 1 John 4, verse 19, we love Him. Why? Because he first loved us. He did the loving first, and then because He loved us, now we can love Him. Paul wants us to understand, we don't do this. It is God who has done it for us, and we choose to accept His gift. And he did this, Paul says, from before the foundation of the world. It was his idea. It wasn't his second idea or his third option. It was his primary goal to choose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Now some would argue that we can't even choose, that we don't have that capability to choose, that it's all been predetermined by God, who will be chosen and who will not. I don't agree with that. I don't think Scripture does either. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3, the writer says, how shall we escape? And he's refer you refer back to verse 2, this just punishment of God. How shall we escape God's just punishment if we neglect or ignore such a great salvation? To neglect or to ignore is something that we do. We can either accept what he, His gift 
or we can ignore it and reject it. That is our choice. Now this morning I want to concentrate on what Paul says next. And this is the harder part. Paul says we are chosen to be holy and blameless. The question is, what is holy? A number of years ago, Ruth took care of a couple on the other side of Logan, and, and Jane Jean had uh, Alzheimer's pretty bad. So she didn't, wasn't really aware of who people were and where she was and all of that. But I remember one time we took them to Westerville to visit their old home. And on the way, every time we would hit a bump in the road, she would shout out, Holy Toledo! And, and I, you know, we've probably all heard that phrase. But where does that come from? Why, I mean, let's face it. Toledo is not holy, all right? Um, sorry, Beth. It's, it's not. But where did that phrase come from? So I did a little research. Toledo, Spain is called Holy Toledo because that city was the first city in Spain to embrace Christianity. That's where it first took root. And so it is known as Holy Toledo. Now sadly... There are a lot of other phrases that we hear in our world where that word holy is also used. And most of the time, it is not good. And I won't remind you of any of those and don't stop and think about any. But the fact is, why is that word used with a profane word? What causes that? And there's lots of theories on why that is. But it seems to be that it's, it, it is used as an exclamation or as an intensifier of the word that follows it. It should never have a place in the life or the mouth of a believer. We do not place the holy with the profane. Our world does, and we hear it often. We should not be that way. But even the world has this fuzzy idea of what holy is. When you ask a non-believer, what does the word holy mean? Well, it's, it's special, it's, it's good, it's, it's right, it's, it's something that's different. But it's, it's beyond reach of most people. even thought the, the, the phrase, and maybe you've heard this, holier than thou, what does that mean? Well, it's someone who, who at least appears to be more morally superior than someone else. You know, they kind of stick their nose in the air and, well, they don't associate with these people or those people and, oh, you're just holier than thou. There's something in our minds that holy, we understand it a little bit somehow. But holy is to be perfect, without blemish. Now last week, this being Lent, Wayne told us that he was giving up something for Lent. Why was he doing that? To be more holy, right? So, Wayne is giving up the eating of pickled pig's feet. It's working. Just look at him. I can tell. There's a difference, right? Somehow in our minds we think, well, you should look different if you're holy. It was interesting, a number of years ago in our flight to Israel, 
about 5 o'clock in the morning, and it was like a 12-hour flight, something like that. All of these Jewish men and boys stood up in the aisles and in their seats, and they took out their stuff, and they wrapped their arms with these leather straps. They wrapped a strap around their head with this little square box. And they, and they stood in the aisles, and they stood in their seats, and they did this. Just for like a, a half an hour or longer. Just, just constant. And they were, they were mumbling words out loud. You could hear them. It sounded a little bit like Marvin having a sing. You know, that awe thing. But, but what were they doing? Well, I suspect they were trying. That, they felt that that made them more holy. They were being obedient to what they believed the law told them to do. The fact is, When the young, rich young ruler came to Jesus, he asked Jesus a question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And I find Jesus' answer at the beginning very interesting. He simply said, keep the commandments. Do not murder, do not steal, do not commit adultery, do not lie. He listed off the commandments. And the man said, well, I've done all those since I was little. And then we know that Jesus takes him further and further, and finally the man says, oh, I can't do that. And he turned and he walked away. But there's something, what can I do? It's something that we do. We're kind of drawn to that. The Pharisees, who were the holiest of the holy in that time, people thought anyway, Why were they considered holy? Because they kept the law meticulously. And it's interesting how Jesus responded to them. They would make rules just so that they would keep the rules that they had already made. It kept piling up more and more. All these external things to be more holy. The fact is, we know that if a person is holy, it has to show. It has to make a difference. I dug out our church covenant this week and I read through that again. And I found it interesting that the word I appears 16 times. I will, I believe, or something like that. And I thought about that. And I think it's very appropriate because of what the covenant is. It is our choosing, it is our declaration that I will do this, I do believe this. It's a statement of faith and a statement of practice. But the signing of that document does not make you holy. It doesn't. If you are one who is prone to making a list and checking it twice, might I suggest that we look at how Jesus responded to those Pharisees in Matthew 23 the most holy of his day. And I find it interesting also that every religion in the world except Christianity is built on a list. If you do this and do this and do this and do this and don't do this and don't do that and don't do the other thing, then you are considered holy by whatever God you serve. Christianity is different. 
Well, here's a list of what Jesus called them, and you can write down this list, and it's not a good list if you want to write it down. He called them blind guides. Can you imagine? Trying to lead someone else, and you're blind yourself. That's not going to work well. It's not going to end well. He called them fools. He called them whitewashed tombs full of decaying bones. He called them snakes. He called them a generation of snakes. He called them hypocrites. And he called them unmarked graves. Now that got my attention. What did Jesus mean when he called them unmarked graves? And I suspect that that was the most devastating accusation he made against them. In Numbers chapter 19, God is speaking to the people. And he says this, he lays out a list of things that will defile them. And he says, anyone who touches the corpse of a dead person is unclean for seven days. And anyone who touches a human bone or even an unmarked grave in the wilderness will be unclean for seven days. So what was Jesus implying when he reminded them of what the law said, what God said when they were in the wilderness, of touching even an unmarked grave? Now how would you know if you touched an unmarked grave? So Jesus was telling, he was implying something about them that was the same as touching an unmarked grave. And I think he was saying that anyone who associates with these, these men who consider themselves holy becomes defiled. Because they have constructed their whole religion on externals, on the outward things. And they had an ever-growing list of what it meant to be holy. Now don't misunderstand. He was not condemning externals. He was not condemning them because they kept the Sabbath. The verse that says, they, they, the world, will know that we are Christians. How? By our love. That's an external. It's something that shows. So the world will know we are Christians if we love one another and if we love the dying world. That shows. They should understand that. They should know. And I, it was interesting, again, doing some reading about the early Anabaptists. During you know, the plague, the plague came and it, it seemed like every 10 years the plague made its way through, through Europe. And the Anabaptists they stood out among all others because they were willing to stay in the cities and to help those who were dying from the plague. And many of them died as a result. It was their love for other people that people understood. These people, they're, they're different. God is with them. God loves them. God is using them. It showed our love for each other and for the world is one of the evidences, the outward evidences, that what we promote is genuine. A Tesla salesman does not drive a Chevy, although it's probably a better option. <laughs> the fact is, if you're selling something, if you're promoting something, 
there has to be evidence that you believe what you're promoting is true. Being a Christian, that word means little Christ. So we have to think in our minds, okay, how, how does that look to the world? How do they know that we are Christians? It's interesting that Jesus condemned those Pharisees not because they kept the Sabbath, not because they kept the things of the law, but as one writer said, he condemned them because their hearts were as black as hell. He rebukes them. He says this, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, your mint, your dill, and your cumin. Think about it. They were tithing from the smallest things from their garden. They would go through and they, oh, I gotta, I gotta measure this out. I give a tenth. Okay, this goes. They were doing, they were that meticulous. But you have neglected the more important matters of the law justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. He wasn't condemning their giving a tenth of their spices, he was condemning them because the weightier matters of mercy, justice, and faithfulness they were ignoring. Holy means whole. It means entire. It means complete. It means flawless. And it means set apart from all others. In, in, in a sense, you ladies who have china in a china cabinet, maybe that's a thing of the past, but you only get that china out for special occasions. In one sense, it's holy because it's special and you only use it for certain purposes. We wouldn't consider it holy, but in that definition, it would be. You recall when Moses was in the wilderness, he's walking through the desert and there's just bushes every few feet, however that is. But it wasn't a wilderness like, you know, tall trees and that. It's a dry, barren landscape. And all of a sudden, he sees in the distance, he sees a bush that's on fire. And that would catch your attention. And he notices that the, burn, the, the bush isn't burning up. It just keeps burning. And so as he approaches this bush to see what's going on, a voice comes from the bush and tells him, Moses, take off your shoes because you are standing on holy ground. What made that ground holy? The presence of God. That was the only reason that ground was holy, because God was there. We are made holy when we confess and believe. We become holy at that moment when we call that justification. God justifies us and makes us holy. But holy is also a process, an ongoing process, and we call that sanctification. Aaron had a verse up here this morning. Hebrews chapter 10. With one sacrifice, Christ made His people perfect forever. They are the ones who are being made holy. It's an ongoing process to holiness. Daniel Webster writes, Man is more or less holy as his heart is more or less sanctified or purified 
from evil dispositions. So as we grow in that, we become more holy. We are holy in that we are justified. And we become holy as we are sanctified. So we are chosen to be holy. We are chosen to be pure in heart, to be pure in affection, pure in desire, and pure in motivation. The problem is, we were all born with this thing called the human nature, a fallen human nature. And it constantly rubs against our our spiritual nature, this new nature that we've been given. And sometimes, it actually slaps us in the face. So we're we're walking along, and it's just it's almost like there's it's like a, a thorn in your in your shoe. You know, it doesn't really hinder your walk most of the time, but it's just a pain in the foot. So we have this fallen human nature. As believers, we still battle this. We still have to deal with it. And we have this propensity towards sin. And I like to call this our propensity to self-pleasure. It's what, what feeds ourself. So why do I get angry when somebody pulls in front of me? Why do I get angry? Ruth asks me that all the time. Why do you get angry? It's because they've messed with my self-pleasure. I was doing just fine, and they messed with it. And they need to know about it. Why do I enjoy reminding other people of their failures? Or why do I like reminding them of my successes? Because it feeds my self-pleasure. So here we are. We're holy. We're called to be holy. But there's this constant rubbing of our two natures as the Lord's taking us to where He wants us to be. And sometimes we think that this life of holiness, it's, it's kind of elusive. It's, it's just not attainable. And then Paul adds to it, and then he wants us to be blameless as well. Holy and blameless. That is our desire, that is our goal, that is our calling. The main speaker at Minister's Conference, Jim and Melissa and Ruth and I and Carl were there. He gave a number of illustrations. I'd like to use two of them this morning and maybe expand on them a little bit as I recall him giving them. But as we, as we have this desire to become holy, this command to be holy, how do we do that? How does it work? As we live in a fallen world with, with a fallen human nature, we've been cleansed. Yes, we've been forgiven, but we, we, still, we all know it. It's still there. We have to deal with it. So how do we get to that place? The fact is, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus, the Holy Spirit lives within you. Because He lives within you, you are holy. That's a fact. That does not change. But as we live with this, the grading of our human nature, the Holy Spirit wants to guide us. He wants to encourage us. He wants to draw us. And sometimes he may even have to push us in the path toward holiness. Let's see how this is going to work. So one of the things that he spoke of was the difference between guilt and shame. The two aren't the same. And we'll see this as we move forward. So what is the source of guilt and what is the guilt, the source of shame? 
Guilt reminds us of what we have done. But shame also reminds us of what we have done. The Holy Spirit is the one who brings guilt. We do something and, and we feel guilty about it. As Christians, the Holy Spirit does that. He works in our minds, He brings it to our attention, and we feel guilty. The, the Satan is Satan is the source of shame. We need to go to Genesis chapter 3. And it seemed like we go an awful lot to Adam and Eve because so much happened in the garden at the fall. But Adam and Eve, God had given them a very simple command. You can eat anything in this garden, anything you want. All the fruit, all the nuts, everything that grows is yours for food. Help yourself. Except, there's just one tree in the center of the garden. Don't eat from that because the day that you eat it, you're going to die. So they can have everything. We know the story very well. What's interesting is Satan comes into the garden. He's more crafty than any of the other animals, God said. And he goes to Eve. Now notice, Adam isn't addressed. But he goes to Eve. So I picture this as Adam, he got distracted and he's looking at this tree over here. Or he, he found something he found interesting. And, and Eve, she's, she's off over here. And Satan seizes the opportunity. He sees they're separated. Okay, so Eve's over here by herself. Adam's within shouting distance maybe. Maybe closer. And so Satan tells Eve, asks her a question. Did God really say that you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Now, he knew that wasn't true. But he asked her. So he puts this thought in her mind. Satan is trying to separate them. God had placed them in the garden as one, to be one, to work together as one. But he found a way to separate them. So he asks Eve. And so, of course, Eve... You know, she looks around, hey, Adam, come over here. We need to talk. You hear what he's saying? She didn't do that. She never did that. At least the text doesn't say that. And neither does Adam, you know, where's Eve? Oh, she's, she's talking to somebody. And so Adam goes over and says, Eve, who are you talking to? Wait a minute, wait a minute, don't, let's talk about this. They don't do that. They tried to go it on their own. Satan will do that. He'll try to separate us from those that, he, that God has placed around us because he knows that makes us more vulnerable. So we know the story. Adam or Eve eats the fruit. She offers some to Adam and he eats. And instantly something changed. They, something was different. Something was wrong. In Genesis 3-7, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And notice what they do. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now why did they do that? When, you, when the Holy Spirit reminds you of something that you did and you feel guilty, how do you feel? When Satan comes in and he wants to bring shame, how do we feel? Ugh. It's the same. Oh, we just feel awful, right? That is the reason you never 
operate by feelings. Isn't that amazing? This isn't original with me. But I thought that's really interesting. They felt bad about what they had done. Now what? Guilt, the Holy Spirit wants to move us closer to God, not farther away. Satan, through shame, wants to take us farther away from God. So the next step is the process. Satan's process, the Holy Spirit's process. What do we do? How do we deal with this? We have to do something with our sin and the feeling that it brings. True guilt from the Holy Spirit is meant to bring it to light, to confess. Shame, on the other hand, is to hide or to cover it. Adam and Eve, they knew that they were naked, so they instantly started sewing fig leaves together. Imagine the ridiculousness of that endeavor. In verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam, realizing his guilt, he ran over to, to God and he fell on his knees and he said, Oh, Father, I have sinned. No, he didn't do that, did he? He ran off and he hid among the trees. He felt shame. Satan led him to feel shameful. It wasn't the Holy Spirit guiding with guilt. That's the difference. And so God keeps calling. And finally, Adam admits his mistake. And so Adam and Eve, just imagine, they walk before God and they're wearing this garment of leaves. They hoped that God would not notice. They hoped that God would just get distracted by something else and just leave them alone. But sin always has a way of becoming uncovered. I just remember hearing just recently a man, I think he was a police officer, many, many years ago, he, he committed some murders. And just through this random, you know, they do these DNA testing heritage thing, you know, and somehow through that, many years later, they found out that he was guilty of those crimes. Be sure your sins will find you out. The res end result is that sin grows when we feel shame and we don't, aren't dealing with it. The, the sin grows and lies are told. Fingers are pointed. So God says, Adam, did you eat from that fruit? It was her. You gave it, remember? It's her fault, but it's really your fault. And so she looks at Eve, he looks at Eve and Eve, did you? And it was that snake, he did it. You see what happens? We start pointing fingers. It's not my fault. Satan wants us to live in that state, constantly reminded. It never leaves us. Unconfessed sin just keeps popping up in the most crazy places. And we're defeated. And we feel ineffective. But guilt from the Holy Spirit leads us to light. It leads us to confession and to freedom. There's one verse in Scripture that I am so absolutely thankful for, and it's 1 John 1.9, and probably most of you know that verse. It's a powerful verse in our quest, in our journey toward holiness, to be holy before God. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us 
from all unrighteousness. Recently, Ryan and I went to see a movie together, The Jesus Revolution. It was a revival that took place that started in California back around 1970, 71, 72 in that frame. I was in eighth grade in 1972. And so seeing that movie kind of brought back that whole era to mind and the songs and, and it's good. I recommend, I recommend it. But during that time, when I was in eighth grade, we had a couple, a man and his wife. They were our teachers and principal at the little school I attended. Mr. and Mrs. Emerian. They were from a European country. Wonderful people. And I remember sitting in class as an eighth grader and... And all of us were being as, you know, eighth graders would be. I don't, there might have been ten of us in the class. Seventh graders were on this side, eighth were on this. And so we were talking and making noise, and all of a sudden, and Mr. Emerian was trying to teach. All of a sudden, the door opened, and Mrs. Emerian said, Mike Bender? That's me. So I walked out, you know, kids are snickering, and because everybody knew Mrs. Emerian she was the sheriff, okay, if you know what that means. So I walked out into the hall, and she said, Mike, I called you out here because I could hear your voice above everybody else. Wow. And then you know what she did? Bam! She slapped me across the face. Wow. And so I did the righteous thing, the holy thing. I turned to the other cheek. It was a wrong thing to do. That's a confession. It was wrong. But what's interesting, the reason I tell this story, probably 15 years later, we were visiting my parents. I was married then. We had a couple children. And Mr. and Mrs. E. Marion were at my mom and dad's house. They came for supper. And Mrs. E. Marion, all those years later, she said, Mike, I have an apology. I have a confession to make. She said, you remember the day when I called you into the hallway? And I thought, yeah, do I remember and she said, what I did was wrong. Will you forgive me? Man. All those years, that had bothered her, and she was looking for an opportunity to apologize. And she did. I will never forget that. And they are both with the Lord today. But that confession, it brought her freedom. It brought her release. As we think about that verse, if we confess our sins. We have lots of sins. And it's interesting, that word is plural. It means many. It means obviously more than one. And so the first step in, in becoming more holy is we confess our sins. And then what happens? What happens when we confess our sins? What does God do? He forgives our sins. Okay? I can't spell and I can't do anything. Now, you notice I have a nice PowerPoint. I'm jealous of you guys. Okay. I couldn't do this in PowerPoint. I'm sorry. It's So, anyway. And then what does he do? 
He, can, he, he cleanses us. Okay, The first thing, we confess our sins. You get the picture. We confess our sins, He forgives our sins, and He cleanses us. He makes us righteous. But then tomorrow comes, and that guy pulls out in front of me again. Now what do I do? I've got to, I, I confess again. And then He forgives again. And then He cleanses again. We feel that freedom. If we don't deal with it, then sin grows and we feel rotten all over again. And we hope that nobody notices. Now, Dave Musser, when he, he told this, what do you see happening here? Jim, Miss Lissa, don't answer. Ruth, don't answer. You notice anything that's going on here? What's happening to our sin? Our sin keeps getting smaller and it's supposed to get farther apart. As we become more like Christ, as we are in Christ, we confess our sins, He forgives our sins, He cleanses us, the sin becomes less and farther apart. That is the goal. That is what happens if we are quick to confess. It is so freeing. And over and over and over, we confess, He forgives, He cleanses. We confess, He forgives, He cleanses. Jesus says, Come unto Me all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Life is full of burdens, and one of those is sin. And this morning as we come to the communion table, maybe there's something in your life, maybe something has popped into your mind that happened a month ago, a week ago, a year ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. And it, it just keeps popping up. It keeps bothering you. You've never dealt with it. And it may not be something flagrant, something that, you know, some gross sin. It, it may be, but it may not be. It may simply just be a negative attitude toward another brother or sister or a family member. So this morning, before we take communion, I want us to think. I want to let the Holy Spirit cause us to, to think about, to do His work. If there's something that we need to confess to Him, maybe there's something we need to confess to another. I want us to give an opportunity to do that. I've asked Hope to come and play just a couple verses, and I, I called her on the spot, so... And she comes and she's going to play a couple of verses. It's a song that I remember growing up just as I am without one plea. Lord, may You open our minds and our hearts that we will, we will hear from Your Spirit this morning. If there's something that stands in our way from freedom, we just can't break away from it. It's just a constant reminder and we tend, it brings shame. We feel awful about it. And we just hope upon hope that nobody else knows. Lord, it's, it's not easy to confess. We know that. But Lord, as we take just these, these couple of, this, this minute or two, as we listen to the music of this song, Father, may you work in us what you want to work in us. If anybody feels like you need to go to someone, then go to them. If you need to come forward and just kneel in the front, do that. 
whatever it is. Let's just let the Holy Spirit examine us before we come and we take the bread and the cup, the remembrance of the suffering, the remembering of the gift that God has given us through Jesus. Let's just spend a couple minutes thinking.